because I was, you know, familiar with visiting different locations in California and Ohio, I started to pursue the idea of capturing multiple experiences within single paintings. So in other words, what I started to do was I would go out, I would paint, and then I would go out the next day and continue on the same painting, but at a different time. And of course, the weather would be different. I, I just started to capture and layer the paintings and create different sections of each painting that was from a different experience. And what this did for me is it, for me, it really, it felt like it was the right thing to do. It felt like it was completing a part of me that hadn't been satisfied before. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 211th episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Benjamin Scott Anderson, who is currently enrolled as an MFA candidate at Bowling Green State University. We're going to talk a bit about his thesis exhibition coming up this April, so just a couple months away, so we're very excited to have him on. He was selected by Brian Frank as one of Studio Break's 2018 student competition winners. Again, we run that competition every spring, so if you are a student, please be sure and keep your eyes peeled for that. So once again, very excited to have Benjamin on today. He has a really interesting background, not only as an artist, but as a musician. He has a background in percussion and jazz drumming. So we're going to talk a little bit how that improvisation finds its way into his most current series of landscape paintings, which are plein air based, and they kind of incorporate all sorts of different times of the day and different experiences. And of course, we're going to break all of that stuff down, his MFA experiences and all of this bodies of work and various things that he's been doing very productive artists so it's gonna be very exciting so please stay tuned for that of course i do want to remind any new listeners that studio break is a podcast and blog site we feature a variety of different artists they come on and they share all sorts of stories about their studio practice and their work and again you can listen right on studiobreak.com with the default player you can hit that itunes hyperlinks to subscribe to the podcast so be sure and do that once again each of our posts have images of the artist's work as well as links to their websites for more information so be sure to explore again we've got a big archive of episodes so check them out of course studio break is in a number of social media formats so be sure and like our facebook page if that's your thing you can of course find us on twitter at studio break and on instagram at studio underscore break so be sure to say hello and again if you would be so kind help share and spread the word about studio break if you like the podcast and leave your comments and feedback always great to spur some conversations and to talk about art so be sure and say hello and with those short announcements out of the way, we're going to dive right into this interview with Benjamin Scott Anderson. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Ben Scott Anderson. How are you this morning? Good. Thanks, David, for having me on. Yeah, again, it's awesome to have you on. And as always, uh, it's interesting because you are you know, currently studying for your MFA degree at Bowling Green State University. You are currently speaking with me from California. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right, David. <laughs> that's, a, that's a bit of a, a bit of a shift. So where, whereabouts in California exactly again? Well, right now I'm, I'm based in Monterey, California, uh, in the Bay Area. And it's, you know, it's January, it's wintertime, and there's no snow in sight. So um, I guess that's that's nice, but I'll be back to pursue my last semester of my MFA degree in painting at Bowling Green State University in Ohio shortly. So I'll be with the all the snowflake hills and sure everything again soon. So awesome, awesome. Well, again, I, I really appreciate you applying to our competition, and again, it'll be nice to kind of find out more about you. So as you might be familiar, I always love hearing about early experiences, and you know, from our conversation earlier, it sounds like you had a lot of different interests as a kid. Is that correct? Well, I grew up as a very visual thinker and a visual learner, and I was fortunate enough to uh, be one who was homeschooled by my mother. Mm-hmm which means that I had a lot of time to focus on what I was interested in under the mentorship and guidance of my mom. I was always uh, interested in nature. We actually had moved around quite a bit as a, as a young family on the East Coast. 
there were typically, you know, opportunities to be outside uh, in the backyard or hiking or or doing some sort of, you know, seasonal sport. I was always looking at things and I was always doing different activities as a young child. As part of, you know, being a visual learner, I was also very musical. And at an early age, I was I was really in love with drumming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was always interested in different things, and I was always trying to learn new things and 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 look at things from a different perspective. Just just because that's what I like to do. What's your favorite time? My my favorite what? I'm kidding. sorry. I, I try <laughs> try to rando there. Drumming time. I'm oh yeah. oh, yeah. <laughs> Let me see. Well, you know. I'm always a three quarter. Sorry. Yeah. Right. No, not no. A, not a, not good joking, but um, no, I can no, I, you can kind of skip me off. Of <laughs> um, you know, drumming. I mean, that was such a great endeavor. I mean, learning all the different polyrhythms and becoming. I really, you know, I really enjoyed Afro-Cuban music for a long, long time because of who I was taught by, and also because of of the different rhythms and feels. But really, my main education in drumming was in jazz drumming, and a lot of that had to do with, like you mentioned, was the word time, because there's so many different time signatures in a lot of the more advanced pieces of jazz music. Mm-hmm. That's just kind of who I am. That's, that's me in terms of my personality. I like to try new things. I like to challenge myself. There's, a, there's the world of drumming. There's the world of nature. There's the world of art. And there's so many different things along the way, just like anything in life. But again, trying to um, just explore things for fun is super important too. So, well, and it sounds like that experience then was a lot about then you know figuring out that world, you know, in terms of being able to take your creativity and then find a path forward. And again, it's it's weird to kind of think about it, but based on our interaction, we were just talking a bit before about you know teaching and you know, the state of education, but it kind of makes a lot of sense to me then, you know, what better person to guide you into, you know, figuring out about the world than your parents, you know, it sounds oh, cliche, yeah. but you know, teachers always get the, get the bad shake of it, you know, <laughs> like, oh, this person should be so more, you know, more invested, you know, but what's, who's more invested than a teacher parent? <laughs> oh my God. No, you're absolutely right. And you know, you know, in homeschooling too, can sometimes be perceived a certain way, maybe in a in a different light. But really, for me, it was probably one of the best things that's ever happened to me. I was very social as a homeschooler. I knew and still know so many people because of homeschooling. Mm-hmm. Did a lot of field trips and a lot of workshops with other families and homeschoolers. And so we weren't just limited to one school system or a classroom setting. Basically, we had a lot of exposure because, and I say we because I, I have two younger siblings mm-hmm. who are also uh, very um, naturally inclined in the arts and, and music as well. You know, I was I was with parents who not only were very loving and encouraging, but they let me pursue what I wanted to pursue at a very early age, and that primarily was drawing and drumming, so visual art and and music, and. To me, that was so critical in the early years. And I'm talking, you know, between the ages of like five and nine years old. Right. And when I was nine, I remember I had my first percussion lesson at Dartmouth by a wonderful percussion composer named Nathan Davies, who to this day has impacted me because he taught me how to basically speak the language of percussion through using visual metaphors and analogies. Mm-hmm. And as a visual learner, as a, as a young person who was drawing birds and dinosaurs and dragons all the time, and thinking about color and shape and form all the time, learning how to uh, think of music in a similar way was how I operated. And Nathan Davies at Dartmouth, really, he just let me pursue that, and he really opened me up. To this day, even right now, I still work with musical analogies when I'm when I'm talking about my art or and vice versa. Well, so to kind of think about like the art side of it, you know, were you drawing a lot of things from observation? You know, you mentioned nature before. Were there opportunities for like workshops and you know studying with people yeah. that also taught art as well? Oh yeah. Well, you know, because we had moved around as a young family, first, you know, we were kind of in the Northeast and then we moved to Florida for three, for about three years. And I remember when I was, you know, around, it was, I was so young, I was probably five or six and I have such vivid memories of this. 
in in the backyard in Florida, we uh, we we had all all sorts of wildlife. Specifically, what had the biggest impression on me were the sandhill cranes. Mm-hmm. And the sandhill cranes would fly into the backyard, and I remember them having such an incredible wingspan and these really long necks and these long legs. And I always thought, to my, it was always thought-provoking because as a young child, I remember thinking, now how can something that has long legs and a long neck, how can something like that become airborne? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it inspired me to think. And it was that kind of conscientious mindset that I had that caused me to draw things out. And so I was always thinking about things from what I had seen in nature. In the classical sense, I wasn't necessarily drawing from observation where I'm looking at something and transferring it to a substrate. Rather, I was remembering experiences and remembering things that I had seen in nature. And that just had the biggest impact on me. The same goes for Vermont when we moved to Vermont in the later years of my childhood. And, you know, between the ages of like, you know, eight years old and 13 in Vermont, that was tremendously impactful. We had a little farmhouse, and we we had bird feeders, uh, like most people, and mm-hmm. and um, all these different birds would come, you know, chickadees and cardinals and blue jays. Now, if you're really pausing to look at these birds and really pausing to watch their behavior, you start to notice all these different characteristics, and I was always fascinated at the different characteristics of the different bird species, and. I would draw cardinals and blue jays all the time. And it was just so interesting because there were different ways that their wings would unfold, the way they would flap in the air, the way they would bounce around. And it was all those little details that suddenly it's, it really starts to have an impact on how you perceive the world because you start to notice things a certain way. Again, I wasn't necessarily drawing from observation in the classical sense, but I was really looking at things and I was always curious about how they worked. You know, the backyard was a huge luxury, beautiful backyard, trees everywhere, forests, and, you know, t- hiking and snowshoeing and skiing and all of that was was just, it's just what I remember about living in the Northeast. And so I was always drawing. And so that was kind of one part of me as a young kid that was important. The other part that was super important was my exposure to children's books. Mm-hmm. And the illustrated children's books that I remember had such an impact. Uh, One of my favorite illustrators to this day is a guy named P.J. Lynch. Mm -hmm. And he did a lot of fairy tale illustrations. And and really, it was guys like P.J. Lynch. There was another one named uh, James Gurney who were really approaching the illustrative world from a fine art perspective. What this means is that their illustrations were less cartoon-esque, and they were much more based on fine art principles and observation. And so I was really interested in these books that had levels of representational and and realism that many other kids' books didn't have. And so I was just always exposed to really good art. Now, in terms of, you know, other exposures... I have a mother who is an artist. Growing up, she wasn't. She never really taught me because I I didn't really want her to teach me. Mm-hmm. Art was kind of my you know my fun kind of sacred time to just be myself and do what I love to do. But she inspired me, and so I never really received a formal education from her. But she really inspired me because she was painting and drawing birds and doing figures and lots of printmaking and. Because she was homeschooling us, she didn't really have a lot of time to do that, but she had a lot of older work that was always lying around the house. So that was really, really important to me as a visual thinker to always have um, artwork around. So that was really great. So I, you know, I, I would say that you know, there, was, there was a lot of different art forms I was interested in, but most importantly, I was always looking, I was always thinking, I was always wondering and contemplating. Considering that you moved around so much, what what brought you to uh, Ohio Wesleyan and, and what was that experience like considering, you know, a lot of the things that you were just talking about in, in terms of studying art mm-hmm. with, with professors and being around other people, maybe in a different context than you'd previously been in terms of studying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a great question because I, I, I really hope that other people get to think about this one. <laughs> this is, 
I went to Ohio Wesleyan because it offered me a wonderful opportunity to pursue what I love to do. And that, that is my fundamental baseline, raw, whatever you want to call it, answer. And I say that because to me, going to Ohio Wesleyan, you have to understand, I, you know, I was going to Ohio Wesleyan from California. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people in Ohio were kind of dumbfounded. They didn't really understand why I would ever dream of living in Ohio uh, <laughs> when I was from California and had lived in California for over seven years. And the answer is, again, it's just because Ohio Wesleyan offered me an opportunity to heavily pursue what I truly loved, and that was that was art. And so Ohio Wesleyan in Delaware, Ohio, that was really my first formal education in the arts. That's when I really started to learn about observational techniques and processes and and different mediums, a, a plethora of different mediums. And uh, their program was a tremendous program. I think it was the perfect fit for me. There's a lot of thinkers at Ohio Wesleyan, you know, not just in the, the student body, but the professors are very um, interested in teaching. They really care about what they do. It's a very high quality education because of that. You know, it's the people, it's not just the program, it's the people in the program. Mm-hmm. And I really value that, especially coming from a family that valued education inherently. And so at Ohio Wesleyan, I pursued a BFA in oil painting and printmaking. And I also spent a lot of time doing sculpture. And uh, at the time, I had started to learn about 3D printing, and I started using my 3D skills that I had honed on the computer and the program Blender. And so I was always doing multi multitask things. And, and, you know, thank God for college, I took guitar lessons. <laughs> I, and I say that because I was, you know, not only could I pursue art, but I could pursue music. Mm-hmm. And that was such a tremendous experience, uh, taking guitar at Ohio Wesleyan. So, you know, the music and the art thing continued for me in college. And it continued at Ohio Wesleyan. I like to say that it broke me down and it raised me up. Not everything's always glorious all the time. It's a lot of work, as a lot of people know. It really... It kind of breaks you down. It kind of gets you down and dirty with a lot of different things that you have to think about, not just with academics, but with your life, your your identity, maybe. Um, you're questioning your moral compass. And I think amid the chaos of all that, my drive to just make things and pursue learning really made it really brought me up again. So that was really a wonderful experience. No, again, I've talked to a lot of artists that kind of have essentially talked about kind of being lost for most of their life mm-hmm. and essentially the arts kind of like lead them into a way about, you know, focusing their attention on something and, and, you know, learning. And I guess to bring it back to the, <laughs> the interview, the discussion at hand, I'm, you know, like, again, having all of these interests, I would imagine that you just kind of ate it all up then in terms of, you know, yes. kind of learning every technique that you could from, you know, whether that be drawing, you know, life drawing or, mm-hmm. you know, jewelry making. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, what's so interesting is that, and this has happened in many different states throughout the U.S. and from different people, different individuals have, have approached me with, the, with one question. Ben, if you like all these different things, how do you know what you're going to do in life? Don't, don't you feel like you need to choose just one thing? Because the big thing that people have approached me with is, well, what's it going to be, music or art? Mm-hmm. And my response has always been, I don't feel like I have to decide. You know, I, I, don't, feel like, I don't feel like that's ever going to have to be a decision. Now, again, that's from a creative, individualistic perspective. If you want to look at that from a business perspective or an economic perspective where you're concerned about a job or you're concerned about a trajectory – yeah, you know, you got to maybe choose maybe one or two core things you're focusing on to get by. That's fine. But I'm never going to give up on on music or art. You know, it's basically what Ohio Wesleyan offered. It was just another opportunity or a chance at becoming familiar with certain methods and ideologies within different domains. For me, it was the perfect education. But that's me. There's some other people who might not like that. You know, there's other people who might just need that one thing to focus on or they might need a million other things to focus on. You know, there's people who are more inclined to do management, you know. So depending on who you are and what your interests are, 
um, that's going to cause you to take certain classes and, t- and pursue certain ideas in college. Um, and it just so happened that Ohio Wesleyan, I think it was the match for someone like me. It was a great match. And uh, the Ohio Wesleyan art department was very encouraging, very encouraging to their students, like many other professors on campus. They encouraged their students to pursue different mediums in the arts. They pursued their students to pursue different courses on campus. And so you were constantly being exposed to, or at least I was, different professors with different belief systems, different ways of teaching, and different ways of going about the classroom. Because sometimes when you're teaching a method, that method can differentiate itself from the way you might manage a classroom. Mm -hmm. And uh, being a scholar of teaching, I, I really believe that Having a a different array of professors is really important for your personal growth because you're going to get different feedback, you get different opinions. And Ohio Wesleyan, again, that was a great place to receive that. I'm really curious then, you know, what did you kind of gravitate towards making in terms of that experience? Because I would imagine, again, you know, with all of the observation of birds and and things like that growing up in wildlife, I would imagine, you know, that kind of led to, you know, representational painting. But was was it that experience kind of encapsulate, you know, traditional, you know, methods of, you know, painting, essentially? That's a great question because, first of all, there was a process in college that took me from the kind of, you know, young intellectual child, adolescent and teenager that I was as a kind of one who was out in nature and observing things and being allowed to pursue what I was interested in because the process from that into college was very abrupt and it was very, for lack of a better word, it was very, it was very tough Mm -hmm. because basically and I see this a lot too. I saw it a lot with my peers. I see it now as a TA. There's kind of a language that you need to learn as a student. And that is how do you pursue what you love to do and what you're interested in, but still conform and abide by what is expected of you within a college program? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes teachers and students can go head to head. And oftentimes you'll see students get burnt out Uh, You'll see teachers that get burnt out. Um, You'll see a lot of people kind of confused about how to go about pursuing what they're interested in. And I think that one thing that got me through the initial kind of phase of college that freshman year, which is, as a lot of people like to say, it's the hardest year. What got me through was pursuing what I love to do, but keeping it to myself. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's a tidbit of advice for any freshmen who are who want to pursue um, an undergraduate degree and keep your interest to yourself. Your interests will naturally unfold. They will naturally come out by doing. And I, I, I really stress the word doing because if you're a practicing scholar and if you are so interested in, in, in what you're doing at the time, you're going to prove to your professors and those around you what type of person you are. You're, and I don't mean prove to them that you're, you're, you're worth of value, although that can happen. Mm-hmm. But you're basically making a statement through the practice of doing. So, for example, like I, I continued to love music even though I was pursuing an art degree. So in my printmaking class, because I have a BFA in painting and in printmaking, with um, Jim Crable, who was the art department chair at Ohio Wesleyan, and he was my uh, advisor at the time and a very good friend uh, to this day, he had a, a wonderful wonderful impact on me as a young college kid. He listened to me. He spent time with me. He, he mentored me basically within the classroom. And because he was listening and because he truly cared about teaching, he started to quickly learn that I love music mm-hmm. and, and that I grew up as a jazz drummer, not just as a visual artist, but as a jazz drummer. So he started to really encourage me to pursue musical concepts and motifs within fine art. And so I started to make these etchings under the tutelage of Jim, these etchings, these printmaking etchings of my hands holding drumsticks and of my feet and of different perspectives of the drum set and of um, Latin percussion and congas and Cuban instruments. I started to make these etchings that showed myself playing music. And 
they were representational to an extent that you could, you know, you could tell what it was, but they were also abstract compositionally. There's a lot of emphasis in the mark making. There's a lot of emphasis in the process of printmaking that helped accentuate the idea of rhythm and percussion. And so that was just a wonderful experience for three solid years of my college experience was doing that with, with Jim. Mm -hmm. And in terms of painting, you, you mentioned the more maybe traditional methods of painting or observational painting. You know, that's also where Ohio Wesleyan had such a tremendous impact. A good friend of mine to this day is Frank Hobbs, who teaches at Ohio Wesleyan. And he's the painting professor there. And he he had such an incredible impact on me. And I remember, and again, nothing is all hoity-toity and nothing is always easy to get by. It was a lot of work to do this stuff. It was a lot of work to be the student of these guys. But, and I remember Frank, the first day of my level one painting class with Frank Hobbs at Ohio Wesleyan, he said, okay, so just so everybody knows, it's best not to get too excited about painting. Mm-hmm. And and what he meant, if if you step back and look at this statement, it's quite profound. He's not being negative. He's not trying to deter people from their from their hopes and goals. What he's doing is he's saying, okay, look, don't get caught up in the nostalgia of being in a painting class just because um, there's methodologies and schools of thought, and it's all you know, it's kind of like a a wonderland of ideas. Don't get caught up in any of that fluff you know break it down be present work really hard be in control of your decisions and especially in painting and this goes back to uh, the days of the renaissance people have always thought that painting is one of the more challenging mediums and so frank was really blunt with us from the get-go you you really have to be present no phones uh you really embrace what you're learning pay attention to all the details that you're taught and he communicated this, not maybe ex- as explicitly as I'm articulating right now, but that was, to me, in my impression as a, as a young college kid, that was his overall demeanor. Again, that's one of the best things that ever happened to me. It, it, it really just allowed me to not only ignore distractions, because you know it is wonderful to grow up in a household where you are truly in love with what you're doing, but when you're becoming a young adult through college, it's also important to turn a lot of that stuff off and mm-hmm. just go and explore. And that's what Frank was encouraging us to do. So that gave me the opportunity to really define and refine my observational skill set as a traditional oil painter. And so I went really hardcore into people like John Singer Sargent and William Merritt Chase and, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty well known, a lot of students like them, uh, and for good reason. I continued to show that flair or that spark that I had as a child in, in regards to my, myself being interested in things. I, I had that flair in college as well. I had that spark. And I, and I think that um, that was the most important part of me as a student, is to have that, it was to have that drive and that interest. It was, it was a wonderful experience. So what what kind of subjects, I guess, were you kind of like exploring in terms of that ending experience as an undergraduate student? I would say towards the end of my undergraduate experience, I became more and more infatuated with plein air painting. Mm-hmm. And I remember going out in the middle of winter on campus with the French easel and people looking at me <laughs> like I was some sort of two-headed monster mm-hmm. um, because they just couldn't fathom or understand why I was out there in the in the cold winter painting. I just loved it so much. There was there was a, I got a thrill when I went outside in the cold. I also had a thrill when I went outside in the in the heat in the sun during the summers. And um, I, I was always pursuing observational painting techniques, which again are are more traditional. They're perceived as more traditional. They're not necessarily more traditional. It just so happens that um, most European schools of thought focused on observational observational painting after the 1500s but you know towards the end of my college experience I was doing plein air and then after college I had a gap year between my undergraduate career and the current MFA program I'm pursuing Mm -hmm. and it was during that year that I created probably around oh man probably around 
300 paintings. Jeez. I, I, I really went to town and, uh, uh, probably a third of those, you know, around a hundred or so were small nine by 10 studies, plein air studies that I did in California. And because I was, I felt so great, you know, no, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I, I love Ohio. <laughs> I love Ohio, but I also love California dearly. You know, uh, this is my t- part of my childhood is California. So uh, and young adulthood is California. So being able to paint in the Bay Area was so important. And I created over 100 plein air studies during that time. Um, another 100 uh, paintings. If you, And it's not overwhelming if you break it down. Mm-hmm. About half of those were studies on paper. OK. Mm-hmm. And, they, and those were still life and, and architecture and portraiture. And then. The rest of those were um, were hardcore paintings that I had picked up doing at the local art center at the Pacific Grove Art Center in Pacific Grove, California. And there was a figure um, session going on there that I would go paint at weekly. And so I was cranking out, you know, probably four or five paintings a week mm-hmm. just from that session on top of six to seven paintings out in the field as a plein air painter. And I was really dedicated and, you know, I, I've never really, I didn't let any of life's distractions get in my way because I was just dedicated to doing that. And that led me to wondering about how I could pursue uh, painting it as a, as a professional, because I was thinking, man, you know, I really love doing this. It's to me, painting is a form of music. It is it is a form of percussion, and I want to be able to pursue this for the rest of my life. I have to be able to pursue this for the rest of my life. And I, and I knew that one way to go about doing that was to pursue higher education. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I applied for MFA programs. During that gap year that I applied, I ended up deciding on Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio, as my choice and the place that I would attend a lot of that had to do with I, I was familiar with BGSU. I was familiar with Bowling Green because they had come down to Ohio Wesleyan for iron pouring. We had gone up there for iron pouring. This was a sculpture class years ago. Mm-hmm. So I was already familiar with their program and I was already familiar with their culture a little bit. So I, I was really um, overjoyed when I was accepted. Basically, I was, you know, at the time of acceptance. I was working on my first solo exhibition. This is back in 2017. Mm-hmm. And I was working, uh, I had my first solo exhibition um, at the Pacific Grove Arts Center where I had done the figure sessions. And I had applied and, you know, the work was juried and I, I got in. And it was a solo exhibition of jazz musicians. Mm-hmm. And, and they were jazz musicians that I had either witnessed live performing or who had taught me growing up. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like a, a show dedicated to mentorship in a way and, and, and people who had inspired me. So I was still heavily you know, interested in music as I was landscape. But the thing that um, started to become interesting was the idea of integrating my love of music into landscape a little bit more ex- explicitly. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of an idea that I started with at the beginning of grad school. So to think about that process in terms of where it started, I mean, you're, you're currently kind of combining maybe a number of different experiences, or at least that was maybe kind of like one iteration of it. Could you kind of describe, you know, how you started to kind of explore that in terms of the, especially like the combined kind of plein air works? The idea of plein air means, I mean, it means you're going outside and you're painting outside. Common sense is to um, paint small, uh, paint in a way that captures uh, the lighting so that when you're done with the painting, it's, you know, nothing really changed too much with the light or the shadows. And you were able to kind of capture a snapshot in time. That's a very old school school of thought. That's a, that's an old idea. There's nothing wrong with that. I, again, I've done a lot of studies in plein air. I, I continued to do about, you know, I think I did about 50 small plein air studies my first year of graduate school in the first semester because mm-hmm. I was I was I felt like there was something missing I felt like there was something that wasn't as musical as I wanted it to be 
um, there was a rhythm that was off. It's just, you know, as a drummer, you just know instinctively if, if, if you can't find the downbeat that the whole band is going to fall apart. And I, for me, I couldn't find the downbeat in, mm-hmm. in the plein air. So what I ended up doing, because I was, you know, familiar with visiting different locations in California and Ohio, I started to pursue the idea of capturing multiple experiences within single paintings. So in other words, what I started to do was I would go out, I would paint, and then I would go out the next day and continue on the same painting, but at a different time. And of course, the weather would be different. I I just started to capture and layer the paintings and create different sections of each painting that was from a different experience. And what this did for me is it, for me, it really it felt like it was the right thing to do. It felt like it was completing a part of me that hadn't been satisfied before. And it's really difficult for, for me to describe what that is. But what, what I think it is, is I think it's that kind of foundation or that rhythm or that composition in, in a jazz piece that allows the saxophone player or the piano player to solo. And so w- once I started to figure out that, wait, I don't have to try to, you know, make a snapshot of time like the old masters did or do a small study outside and bring it in and make a big composition. No, how about I take a big canvas or a big panel outside and then as the light changes, I'll just continue to paint. I'll I'll continue to paint as everything shifts. Well, it's interesting that you say that too because as as someone that, you know, likes to look a lot, it's interesting how you can find, you know, different light, different color, different textures at, at various times of the day. You know, you'll see something in a lot of different ways just by revisiting it at different times. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, it was a matter of continuing what I had done during my childhood, which was continue to observe, you know, continue to find uh, peace and 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 grounding in nature. One thing that's always kind of scared me is urban architecture because mm-hmm. urban architecture to me coming from the northeast was very foreign. And uh when I moved to California, it was such a mind-blowing experience to see how much bigger the world actually was. But what it also did was it caused me to take action and appreciate what was around me. And now like I I love urban architecture and a lot of painters, a lot of plein air painters who are currently practicing typically incorporate urban architecture into their paintings. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not uncommon. It's a very common theme. The mundane is a very common theme in fine art these days. Um, It has been for a while, but rather than just trying to capture the mundane for the sake of the mundane, however, I'm much more interested in how the architecture creates percussive rhythm in contrast to the, the dynamic and ever-changing sky. And so um, in Ohio, the skies are so different than California that there's a totally different type of music that I associate uh, in the Midwest uh, with, with, with the visuals. I just really love the idea of going out, not knowing what the weather's going to be like, not knowing if it's going to be really nice or maybe not so nice, and just seeing what happens, because I know I have the chops to, A, execute the observational side of things, and then B, to have enough integrity, and this is actually really important, have enough integrity to be out there and be okay with things changing and, and things being dynamic, because you're not really in control. You know, the environment's in control, nature's in control. So kind of just letting go and letting things be what they will be um, is to me, it's more than painting. It's just, it's kind of like, you know, it's maybe it's a good life metaphor, you know, it's, it's a way of being. No, absolutely. And, and again, as you kind of indicated before, I mean, there's some of these paintings that are maybe a little bit smaller. Some of them are that are a little bit larger Mm -hmm. again, kind of maybe break down the process. So for example, there's a painting called shifts, which you can very clearly see a number of different, incarnations of sky or coast again it's it's interesting Mm -hmm. because it's difficult even to tell you know where it's from but maybe talk a little bit about that process of maybe revisiting because i would would imagine that painting might have come through a number of sessions whereas some of them maybe are less sessions or maybe they're more so that was done out here in california and i had done that painting out on the wharf in the bay area 
So it was out, you know, kind of in a dock situation where there were boats and and, uh, commerce and whatnot. The way the Bay Area works, just to kind of give you a sense of what it's like to paint out here, um, if you're in Monterey, and there are so many artists that, that know this, if you're in Monterey, that it means that there's a likely chance of a lot of fog, mm-hmm. <laughs> which means that you know you're, the chance you're going to see sun is very low. A lot of that has to do with the environment and how the environment works. And basically what happens in the summertime, which was when this was painted, this was painted between my first and second year of graduate school. Uh, this painting called Shifts. The way this was painted, it was it was painted during a time when all the inland heat in the desert sucks in the ocean fog into the bay. So we get a lot of fog. And so I was out painting on the wharf, and I was painting on a 20-inch by 34-inch canvas. And I, I started to notice all the different tonal shifts in the fog. And in the atmosphere. Now, the way this works, and I want to be really clear, the type of fog we get in the Bay Area is totally different from from any fog you might see in the Midwest or in the Northeast. Um, the type of fog we get out here, it's a different type of. It's like an atmospheric pea soup fog. It's not. It's not really close and dense. It's it's more expansive. So you get a lot of um, uh, atmospheric depth. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the ideal, I would say it's the ideal representation of what the Renaissance artists were trying to achieve when they discovered atmospheric depth. So it's kind of that idea of there's a lot of, you know, distance. There's there's miles and miles and miles and miles of distance around you that, where you can see mountain horizons or you can see the whole entire coast. But there's a tremendous amount of ocean fog that rolls in. And um, so it's this kind of weird feeling where you feel like you're kind of caged in, but yet the distance is so vast. And so I was painting um, at several different times of day for this one piece because of the size of it, 20 by 34. You know, it's not super it's not it's not a small study. It's not a huge, you know, painting, but but it's something that was perfect for what I was doing at the time, because I would have to, you know, drive down, get parking unload the French easel, unload the palette, get the canvas out. Then I would have to walk to the location, which was, you know, uh, about two miles away. And I would have to set up and make sure I found the spot that I was set up in and made sure, you know, that there were no forklifts or or barrels or anything in the way. Because the, the scene in the painting shifts as you might see, is kind of industrial. You know, it's kind of a little maybe run down, but it's just very industrial. And so um, it was kind of, I was a little concerned about making sure that I could set up in the same place that I had set up in previously. So I think it took about a week to block everything in. And then maybe like, I think it was about just a couple days of refinement and everything was done outside. None of this was done in the studio. All of this was done on site from observation. And it was really interesting to see the dialogue between the more abstract parts of the piece versus the more representational naturalistic parts of the piece. And I felt like that it had the right amount of diversity within it to satisfy me. Um, But again, I wasn't calculating this. I wasn't thinking this through. I wasn't trying to create a method that would that would create this painting. It really came out naturally, but it came out naturally because I was focusing on being present and just being honest and 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 innocent in my observation. Well, and to think about like different techniques and, you know, processes kind of allowing the painting to do what it'll do. I, I know that sounds like a <laughs> something you hear all the time, but you know, it seems like there's some areas that are very, you know, layered and opaque and maybe repainted. It seems like there's some areas that are very thin, maybe, you know, some areas mm-hmm. that look like they're scraped. I mean, is mm-hmm. that something where you're integrating all these different techniques or like maybe something isn't working and you're just going to like scrape it all out? And then, you know, that becomes like this flatness that you kind of like that contrasts with maybe some other texture. I mean, again, give us an give us a little uh Little insight there. Well, you know, it's that's that's great. Thanks for bringing that up because um, sometimes I'll just get carried away in the experience of, mm-hmm. of painting uh, when I talk about it. But um, in terms of the actual technique, 
I'll be upfront with you. You know, I'm, I am a, I am what you call a palette knife painter. Mm -hmm. So my first and foremost tool of choice in painting is the palette knife, which means that I'm not only mixing, you know, the paint as you know, but I'm, but I'm taking that paint on the palette knife and applying it directly to the canvas. And for me, a lot of it has to do with how it feels to do that. The visual result with a palette knife is this kind of, depending on how you're using it, it can be a type of scraped looking aesthetic, or it can look sort of hammered or bastardized, or it, it can look kind of beat up. And because it looks kind of beat up, it kind of adds an organic look to the painting. And so as I'm using the palette knife, a palette knife loads a lot of paint. It loads a lot of paint. You're not, a brush is the opposite. A brush will thin a paint and it will spread a paint. But when you use a palette knife, you're going to get thicker areas of paint if you're using it directly. So um, a lot of people who use the palette knife are known for being called direct painters. That's where that phrase starts to derive from that title. I might be someone you might call a direct painter. And so when I'm using the palette knife and I'm applying these different shapes, I'm literally thinking in terms of surface area and proportion because um, instead of trying to spread and thin paint, I'm applying the palette knife. Now I do use the brush. I do use the brush quite a bit, but I, but I use the brush like a palette knife. I'm not trying to do fine detail and I don't do a lot of minute small details either. I'm really using the brush as just another surface area tool to achieve a certain texture. Now, I, I do have to say, you know, in a little bit of, to provide a little bit of a context when I use the word texture, what I mean is I'm not trying to create a texture for the sake of creating a visual aesthetic, although it can certainly come across that way. The texture for me is just a natural byproduct of the process. Mm -hmm. So it just naturally comes out. You know, if there's an area that needs more brush just because of how the light is reflecting off of the canvas, then I'll do more brush. Because if you apply a brush, I use a lot of rough kind of old brushes that are beat up and worn down. You get a certain texture and the, and the light will reflect a certain way. So depending on the area of the piece and what I'm looking at in my environment, I'll use a different tool um, to get certain effects off the reflection of the canvas. And I don't, I don't really know a lot of, I mean, I know a lot of artists who like to use texture to, you know, to their advantage and to accentuate certain parts of the painting, but I'm using texture, not just to accentuate the painting, but to accentuate what I'm looking at, which sounds the same, but I think they're a little different. Well, and sort of think about it relative, you know, you've got a exhibition that you're, you know, working towards again, you would be graduating in, you know, the, the spring. Right. early summer. You know, what's the process like then in terms of, you know, looking at these two? Because I know that artists and especially painters, you know, sometimes will spend more time looking. So, I mean, when you're out there, I would imagine you get a certain look, but then do you wind up bring it back to a studio or, you know, your apartment, whatever, you're looking at it and trying to decide and evaluate from there? Yeah, absolutely. I well, And the thing is too, and that's where I think for what I do as a plein air painter where I'm strictly going outside and strictly painting from observation, this is where that whole identity that I've created for myself becomes a little bit more vague. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason is, is because when you go back in the studio and you, uh, or you look at your painting that you had worked on outside, Studio lighting and household lighting and gallery lighting is completely different than natural light outside. Mm -hmm. So the way your paintings look indoors are completely—they look completely different than when they had looked outside when you were painting. So it's very tempting to go back and adjust and fine-tune your colors after you bring a painting inside. So one thing I've been doing as a practice is just. Basically, anytime I get tired or feel like taking a break from painting outside, I discipline myself to say, okay, that's fine, but I'm going to take it outside again because it's, it's very natural to want to just take a break, bring it inside the studio and keep working on it. You know, that's a very, 
that comes up a lot with a lot of people. And it's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just I'm, what I'm trying to do for my thesis and what I'm trying to do to satisfy myself for my MFA program is to create paintings that are minimalistic, they're abstract, but you know what? They represent what I experienced and what I saw outside. And for me as an art, as a young artist, I just feel like that's the most satisfying feeling. It's kind of like improving. I like to view painting as improving. It's like being in a jazz band again or a quartet. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, being a jazz drummer growing up, you're capturing things. The best things you capture as a musician are always at the gig. They're always live. Those are the most magical moments. It is so hard to capture those moments in the studio unless you're doing a live recording with other musicians. For me, these plein air paintings are the same way. So, you know, in, within the context of my upcoming MFA show, this is really more about improvisation than anything, I think. Well, and it's interesting because you've been talking about, you know, drumming and, you know, your background in music extensively, too. So I think that idea uh, really unpacks the process, I'm assuming, that you're kind of approaching these with because... You know, in a similar way, you have no idea what you're going to get from that experience until you're out on the pier or you're right. <laughs> huddled in your car <laughs> in the mm-hmm. winter and it's freezing out when you get back to Ohio. So, yeah. again, it's it's really interesting because I, I think that it kind of allows that to, to stay open, which, it, you know, sounds like something that you're very much, you know, wanting to stay open with your, your paintings and, you know, allow them to kind of go where they're going to gonna go i'm curious relative to that too i mean because it sounds like then you've got a selection that you've been working on are there you know ones that kind of just fall by the wayside i mean are there ones that come quick and some that come after you know months of reworking or yeah well you know i think like any artist out there any practicing artist or any artist who's under a, a deadline there's always the worry about wait what if that kind of spark or that um, incredible feeling doesn't happen. You know, what if, what if I don't attain that kind of creative flow that, that I was hoping for? Because the moment you start working for class or you start working for a job or you, you're too, you, the moment you turn art into a business, that can happen to a, a lot of people. But I think that's also the, the wonderful aspect of painting outside. So what happens is, is that when you're outside, you're in different, constantly different conditions that are constantly changing and it causes new ideas and new things to come forward. So fortunately, because I've been really studying how to, you know, self-studying in a way, how to be in the moment and create these paintings, I haven't had a lot of work that has um, been pushed aside. But at the same time, that doesn't mean I've gone through different phases. So, for example, the work I was creating at the beginning of my graduate career is totally different than what I'm making for my thesis show. Basically, I would say, you know, if you were to look at the entire body of work that I've created for graduate school, probably 75% of that work is completely not irrelevant, but it has nothing to do with my thesis show. Mm -hmm. You know, it led up to my thesis show and, and, and it helped me discover what I was trying to articulate in my work. However, all of that work is not within my vision right now. I'm, I'm, so all those paintings are pushed aside. So the current body of work that I'm working on right now, which is a body of 12, are pieces that I've certainly, some of them definitely have struggled with more than others. But a lot of that has to do with trying to figure out how the body of work is going to be cohesive. And so it's less about finding the spark or finding, a, you know, finding that inspiration or, or that presence out in nature. And it has more to do with, wait, I'm creating 12 pieces. How, how are these going to talk to How are they going to relate to each other? How are they going to um, dialogue with each other? There's, it's, this is meant to be a cohesive body of work. It's very tempting to, I mean, Obviously, people know who I am. They can tell what they're looking at if they see one of my pieces because I've created enough work for them to see the, you know, the behavior or the pattern in the work. Mm-hmm. But when you're creating work for a show, it's not, it's not a very ideal situation. <laughs> the, the, the most, the most, I think the most ideal situation for an art show is to look back at a body of work 
and select pieces that you really respond to, put them together and put them in the show. Mm-hmm. That's, 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 that's a great way to go. There's a lot of really wonderful artists who do that. You know, Frank Hobbs from Ohio Wesleyan, he does that. It's, a, it's just it's a way for you to step back and look at things with a fresh pair of eyes. But when you're creating something for a show, that's a different ball game, in my opinion. You know, you, now you have to think about the body work, the cohesive element. Um, does it look like it was, you know, done for the same um, artist statement? All those things come into play. So I think that's, you know, the biggest challenge right now. But it's also one of the great learning experiences of the MFA program, I believe. Yeah. So again, you've got this, this exhibition is coming up in April, I believe you said. So where can people find your work and, and follow you and see all the things that you're doing? Well, right now um, I have a website that people can visit if they'd like to see uh, my work and learn a little bit more about me. Uh, the website is my name. So that's BenjaminScottAnderson.com. I'll be updating the site um, this semester with all my new uh, thesis work. Uh, currently, the site has a lot of outdated work from my you know, previous gap year between undergrad and graduate school when I was kind of in my exploratory phase. But um, I will be presenting a lot of my thesis work there. And then people can also follow me on my Instagram, which is lowercase b-s-a underscore a-r-t. All right. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. It sounds like a very exciting place to be in because you've got still plenty of time that I'm sure you're going to be, you know, staying up, staying up late or getting out early, I guess. I don't know, to, mm-hmm. to see what you're going to wind up making. Again, very exciting stuff. And, and I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with me about it. Well, thanks, David. It's been wonderful speaking with you. And it's a great it's a great way to start off my day before painting, you know. Absolutely. So get the engines all fired up. Awesome. Well, thanks. Yeah. Thank you, David. Thanks once again to Benjamin for joining me. Be sure and check out his website, BenjaminScottAnderson.com, and his MFA thesis exhibition opens April 26th at Bowling Green State University and runs through May 12th. So be sure and check out the show. Again, it'll be really exciting to see these paintings in person, these various experiences of the landscape combined into one. So be sure and check it out. Once again, that show opens April 26th. I usually like to remind listeners, especially if you're a new listener, be sure and check out some of the other episodes on studiobreak.com. Again, we've got a big archive. This is episode 211, so you've got plenty to listen to to get you by in the studio if you want something to listen to and some artists talking about their work and giving you something to think about. So once again, studiobreak.com, check out some of the episodes that you missed. Again, you can listen right there in the default player, or you can hit that iTunes hyperlink and subscribe to the podcast there. Once again, we've got images of the artist's work as well as links to the artist's websites. So explore, check them all out. There's plenty to find. If you've been listening for a long time and you love iTunes, we'd really appreciate if you left a comment there as it just helps others find this podcast. And of course, you can easily do that by using any of the share buttons. So if you like uh, any of the artists that have been on, you can easily share it on social media. So please be sure and do that. It always earns you some karma points, and those come in handy while you're listening in the studio. And, of course, if you're interested in perhaps sharing your work, you're a graduating student this spring, be sure to look out for our competition that we'll be running. Um, and, again, announcements will be up in the next month or so, so just keep a lookout and follow us on our social media. Once again, you can do that by following our Facebook page, so like us there. You can also find us on Twitter at Studio Break and, of course, on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. Again, love hearing from artists there, especially. We're getting all sorts of fun comments. Let me give a couple of quick shout-outs to Chandra Smith Art. Again, thanks for following on Instagram. We are excited that you also thought Benjamin's painting was beautiful. Thanks also to Raven Press Art on Instagram. We really appreciate your enthusiasm and mentioning Studio Break. And again, hope that you enjoyed today's interview with Benjamin. So thanks. I will announce a few guests coming up that we're very excited about. Lisa Lofgren will be on. She's going to talk all about printmaking, which is very exciting. We met back in 
2007. And so we talk all about landscape and how that's been explored in her prints. We also are going to have Liz Tran back on, or at Liz Tran Studios on Instagram. Again, we're very excited to have her back. She was last featured a number of years ago, but we're excited to have her back on so I can catch up with her and hear what's going on in the studio and what's new with her work. I want to thank Skylar Mail. He provides the music to Studio Break and is an artist. You can check out his artwork at SkylarMail.net. If you'd like to see some of my paintings, go and visit davidlinaway.com. There's plenty of work up there, various bodies of work as well. So dive in there. And, of course, follow me on Twitter at David Linaway and, of course, on Instagram at David Linaway. You can even find me on Facebook, but be sure and say hello. It's great hearing from artists, and, again, I like providing this as something to listen to while you're working in the studio. You've got some food for thought as you're working, so always great hearing from listeners. Here's wishing everyone a productive studio. We'll talk to you real soon. <laughs>